Amen. Today's scripture reading is going to come out of the book of Romans. I invite you to turn over there with me. We're going to talk today about the first three chapters of Romans, but our reading is going to come from chapter 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 19, and we're going to read through verse 31. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19, the Word of God says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious to our sins. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ is a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that so that so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law? By this faith, no, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As a gift to you, dads, we do not have kingdom kids today so that you can sit with your children through the entire service. All right? You are welcome. You're welcome for that. Um, where's, where's our sound booth person? Where'd they go? Is Taylor back there? Tell them they're gonna have to you're gonna have to mute the guitar or it's gonna keep buzzing like that. Do y'all hear the buzz? Okay, all right. There we go. Uh, yes, we don't have Kingdom Kids today, uh, but we are excited to share God's word with you. For those who aren't, maybe you're new or you've been new the last few weeks, what we do is we are reading through the Bible together as a church family. We've got Bible reading plans in the back. You can pick one up. There's one for kids that has a journal in it, and there's one for adults, but it's the same reading plan. And we read, from the, we read from the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs every day. I'm preaching primarily out of the New Testament. So you'll see each week we're preaching something that we've read the previous week. And the previous week we actually started a new book in the New Testament called Romans. I want to just kind of, we're not going to have a, a lot of weeks in Romans, okay? Uh, but I want to just take a moment and kind of let you in on this letter. So the Bible is made up of letters uh, and uh, uh, accounts of history of God's people throughout several uh, thousands of years. And in the New Testament, a lot of these letters were written by a guy named Paul. And he was a Jewish man who became 
radically converted into a Christian. And as a Christian, he felt the Spirit of God leading him to share the message of hope in Jesus. That Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the one that God would choose to make the world right again. And so uh, Paul felt the, the, the conviction and the call of God to take that good news and share it all over the world. And so God set him apart for that missionary work. And that's what it means to be a missionary. It means to be one who is sent, sent with a purpose. And the purpose of Paul is to spread the gospel. And eventually, part of this purpose of Paul, uh, early on in the ministry, becomes clear that he's not just to spread this good news to people like him, other Jewish people. He's actually got this unique calling to do something that, for many Jewish people, seemed radical, which is, we've got to take this good news to the non-Jewish world, often referred to as the Gentiles. Now, if they had been reading their Old Testament, they would have known. That's always what God wanted to do. That was the whole reason God chose Abraham and created a nation out of whom we call him Father Abraham. Sometimes there's a whole song. I won't sing it. You're welcome. But there's a whole thing. So Father Abraham created from him a nation, and from that nation would be one who would bring all people, or at least provide an opportunity for all people to come to their Father in heaven. And so Paul has been sent around... uh, that area with this good news and he's now on his third missionary journey he's in a place called corinth there's actually a couple letters in the new testament first and second corinthians that he wrote to the church in corinth but while he was there doing ministry there starting a a church and helping helping encourage the church to grow he's at this uh inflection point in his ministry something a significance about to take place he's got one task that he's intended to take care of He's facilitated an offering for the poor uh, or for those who are struggling in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was undergoing a famine, and so he he facilitated an offering that would be taken up so that funds could be taken back to Jerusalem to help the church back in Jerusalem. And he knows, you know, once I go back to Jerusalem, I deliver this offering, I want to take this good news beyond where I've taken it already, which means I'm going to go west. And far west, all the way to Spain. We know that's his intention from the book of Romans itself. He intends to take the gospel to Spain. And where his current base was, which is a place called Antioch, and there was a church there and they supported Paul and sent him out. He needs a new base that's closer to Spain. And so he's thinking of Romans. Now, how do we get Christians in Rome? Uh, Some say maybe Peter went out there and started the Christian work in Rome. Most likely what took place is early in the book of Acts, we talked about how the Holy Spirit fell on one of the great harvest festivals of the Jewish people in which they would travel to Jerusalem, harvest festival called Pentecost. And at that harvest, that Jewish festival of harvest, just it's a big party thanking God for the provisions that God had provided. At that moment, the Holy Spirit comes down, just as Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come down. And when the Holy Spirit comes down, people get converted. They become Christians. And so you have these Jewish people from all over the known world traveling to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And they're hearing the good news about Jesus. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And then eventually they would go back home. And Rome was one of those places we know that Jewish people had traveled from. And and most likely when they got converted and went back to Rome, a Christian work started there. And a Christian church started there. And that became known. And so Paul knows that, and he knows that there's Christians over there, and I could really use their support as I head to Spain to take the gospel over there. But there's some things going on in Rome and in the Roman church that could be helpful to know. The Roman church is first made up of Jewish people. And the Jewish people who heard the gospel 
the good news about Jesus, brought it home, started a church, uh, began to disciple and train. And eventually, non-Jewish believers, or Gentiles, came to faith. Now, all of that evidently created a pretty big stir in Rome. And if you've read anything about the go- in the Gospels or in Acts, you know that it was... It was uh, the Jewish folks as a whole did not accept that Jesus was their Messiah. And did not accept a lot of what Jesus did and said. And it caused problems within Judaism. Paul was actually one of those who didn't accept it at first. And wanted to see Christians persecuted and thrown in jail because of it. Uh, so you have this tension between, between the Jewish people about Jesus. And that tension became evident in the city of Rome. So much so that the Emperor Claudius in 49 AD said... That's enough. I'm tired of hearing you Jewish folks squabble over this Jesus person. I want all of you out of Rome. And he kicked everybody out of Rome. So now what took place here is all the Jewish people are out of the church in Rome. Who's left? All the Gentile Christians. And the Gentile Christians get comfortable leading the church in a Gentile way, which is not a particularly Jewish way. right? And eventually over time, over the next several years, the Jewish Christians were able to come back to Rome. And now you've got a church of Christians that is primarily led by Gentiles, and now you've got an influx of Jewish Christians moving back, and there's some tensions. How do we live out our Christianity in the midst of these tensions? And that's important to know because Paul, you get the sense that Paul, he wants to see them unify for the sake of the gospel, both there in Rome, and also for the sake of the mission around the world, because if Rome could be a hub, a sending church, from which he could base some of his operations out in the West to share the gospel. He, he wants that church to be strong, a strong base from which he can do that ministry. And so he's writing for all of those reasons. And so, so the book of Romans becomes known as one of Paul's greatest work. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, it's, it's just he has thought through everything. And I just want to kind of give you big picture. And then I want to get into some details that uh, I think might be challenging for us, but I think ultimately are helpful for us. The big picture is Paul has never been to this church before, never been to Rome before. They don't really know him. They know about him. Uh, and he doesn't really know them. He just knows about them, right? And so before he gets there, before he solicits their support uh, for his work in Spain, he wants to introduce himself. He wants to say, this is who I am. This is what God has called me to do. And this is what I'm about. This is what I believe. This is what I understand of God and the things of God. So he's sending this letter also for that purpose. And so he wants them to understand how he, un- how he sees the world. And, and so you'll see that if, you, if you're reading with us and we're going through Romans together, you're going to see that Paul is addressing almost first the Gentile Christians who are leading the church, but also uh, the Jewish Christians that are there right alongside them. And he moves in and out of talking to both of those audiences. And so he is writing to them and he says, Here, here's the big deal. We have got a problem, and it's not a Jewish problem, and it's not a Gentile problem. It's a human problem. And our problem is we are sinners. In our world today, and I imagine even in Paul's world in his day, uh, that is not a popular thing to say. Uh, we don't want to feel like sinners. We don't want other people to see us as sinners. You know, we, we don't, probably don't like the idea that, that God views us as sinners But Paul says, bottom line, that's a fact. That's a biblical fact, is that you and I are sinners. He says, Jews and Gentiles alike, chapter 3, verse 9, 
are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And there he's quoting Psalm 14.3. The Jews are sinners because they knew the law of God. All that Old Testament stuff, all those laws that God gave them, particularly like, you know, the Ten Commandments came out of the Old Testament law, right? They knew all that stuff and they didn't do it. Well, what about the Gentiles? They didn't have that. Paul says they're not getting off the hook either. Paul explains uh, in Romans 1 that, listen, they, you can clearly see God from the world he's created. You can know some stuff about God just by observing the world around you. And even that knowledge of God, however incomplete it was for the Gentiles, the Gentiles rejected that knowledge of God. So in the end, what we see is that in verse 20 of chapter 1, no one, not the Jew, not the Gentile, not me and not you, no one has an excuse before God. All of us stand before God as guilty sinners. Now, towards the end of chapter 1, and and here I do want you to turn over with me and follow along, okay? I think this is going to be important for you to follow along with this. At the end of chapter 1, Paul lets the Romans know what sin and sinners look like. I will tell you in advance, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, But here's what he says. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings. And birds and animals and reptiles. This is the kind of classic idol worship stuff, right? Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another. So he's saying, God says, okay, you don't want to choose me. I'm going to leave you all to yourself to live whatever life you're choosing to live. And then he describes what does that life look like. It says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's a lot of talk there about sexual impurity, particularly about homosexuality and the acts thereof. And it seems as if Paul is saying this, and and, and we're going to read the rest because there's a lot more, okay? And, and, and somewhere along the line, you and I are going to find ourselves guilty of what Paul has to say. But he seems to be saying this is the clearest example of abandoning how God designed the world to be. But that's not all. Verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over their, to their depraved mind. So that they would do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have, I like that that was thrown in there and all that stuff. Like, disobey your parents. So like, listen, you, that's, no, that's not a small thing. Seriously, though, it's not a small thing. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. 
When I read that list, uh, it's not hard for me to find guilty verdict for Matt Singleton in that list. It is not hard at all for me to see in that list, in multiple places, that I am indeed exactly what Paul says I am, which is what God says I am. I am a sinner. I have failed to live up to God's standard or to God's law. And I think if you're honest with yourself, uh, you're going to see some stuff in there too that reflects something in your heart that's not so pretty. Maybe the stuff that you willingly share with others and maybe some stuff that you won't share with anybody. But you see some things that Paul is saying. He's saying, there's a problem here. Now, this is where the sermon ended. It would be, first of all, a very incomplete uh, terrible sermon and a really bad one on Father's Day. We would not leave out, you know, very excited about the rest of the day. But thankfully that there is good news to go along with this very bad news. There is good news that we have a great Savior that overcomes the bad news, which is we are great sinners. And this is the news that Paul wants to share with the world and indeed did share. And him and others like him are the reason we are here today because people have the courage to say, there's bad news. We're sinners, but there's good news. We have a Savior. And you cannot have one without the other. We need to embrace both. But imagine if we didn't. Imagine if we sought to downplay the bad news. Imagine if we were to say that some of those sins aren't really sins. Imagine if Christians taught others to reject the words of God. Now, Paul could imagine that. Look at verse 20, or or verse 32 of chapter 1. He says, Although they knew God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul could imagine. He could imagine that there will be Christians who would reject the Word of God, live outside of the Word of God, and teach others to do the same thing. He could imagine that. But as Christians, that should not be. Whatever God calls sin is what we should call sin. Whatever He tells us to embrace and live is what we ought to embrace and live. And every generation is going to struggle with some of those things is going to find difficulty in embracing and believing different parts of God's Word and and upholding some and downplaying others. But you know what else we read this week? We read Psalm 119. And I was was thinking about this. Psalm 119, first of all, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, right? It's kind of right at the center of the Bible. It's very long. And the whole thing is about God's Word. It uses different words like uh, decrees, and laws and commands. But overall, what it's talking about is God's word, the Bible, right? As they had it then. And now it's complete. But as they had it then, they, that was, they, he just went, the psalmist just went over and over again about the importance of God's word. And listen to what he says in verse 14 through 16. He says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one who rejoices in great riches. Is that how we see the commands of God? These are great riches in the Bible, and I rejoice in following them. I meditate on your precepts. Again, the Bible, the commands. Consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. 
if we are to reject God's Word and what it teaches us about every area of our life, if we reject it at any point, what we end up doing is we downplay the bad news and we say it's not so bad. And if we downplay the good news or, or the bad news, at the very same time, we diminish the good news. We cannot downplay the bad news and not at the same time diminish the good news. There is actually a need for the good news, which we call the gospel in Scripture, because there is such a thing as bad news. That we are sinners. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, we read, not only are we sinners, but that sin incurs for us the wrath of God. That God is so holy and pure. To, to, to see or to be around sin and evil in, our, in ourselves. Something God cannot do. And in fact, it stirs up in him wrath. Now, now you know, that sounds kind of bad, and it is bad, but let's be honest. I mean, we, we all have felt that. Especially today, if you're a father on Father's Day, you know, some of you have, have said that phrase, haven't you? I brought you into this world. I can take you out. You said that, maybe? Or at least you thought it. Let's be honest. You at least thought it, right? You say, I've given so much to you. I've, I've helped create you. I've provided for you. I've taken care of you. And you don't want to pick up your room. Are you kidding me right now? Right? Imagine the level at which God has to experience the sins of billions of people who are rejecting him turning their nose up him, ignoring him, denying his own existence. I, I, I can totally understand why God would be upset by that. In fact, if he wasn't upset with that, that would be a problem. If we had a God who didn't care, that would be a problem. If we had a God that your life and mine and how we lived it didn't matter to him, that would be a problem. But that's not our God. He cares. We matter to him. And how we live matters to Him. And He has given us a way to live that is the best way to live. He has created us. So He knows how life should work. And He says, this is it. If you've ever loved somebody so very much and they make a mess of their life, don't you feel angry? I care so much about you. Why are you doing this? Why are you going down this road? Why are you hurting yourself in this way? This isn't good for you. There's something better for you. Why are you embracing this when there's something better? I think we can kind of get there. We can kind of understand why God might have this sense of wrath within him. But here's, here's the amazing thing, is that, is that we talked about this a few weeks ago. What did God do with that wrath that you and I deserve? God the Father sent God the Son into the world to drink that cup, like we talked about when he was in the Garden of Eden. He said, I don't really want to do this, but if this is the only way, Father, I will do it. I will drink the cup of wrath. I will take the punishment that the world deserves. I will pay for their sins. I'll put it on me. And this is the great news that overcomes the bad news. The solution is not to downplay the bad news, though. Downplaying the bad news only diminishes the good news. Imagine if you were somewhere out in the desert, and just by chance you come across someone who is, who is dehydrated, and, and about to die because of thirst. Imagine if you said to that person, well, you know, you're not really thirsty. You just think you're thirsty. You're actually okay. You're fine. Don't worry about it. 
Sure, I've got water I could give you, but you're going to make it just fine. And then you go about your way. And their life is over. Because they genuinely had a problem. And you didn't say, yes, that is a problem. Instead, you tried to convince them that no, it is not a problem. And as Christians, that can never be the case. We can never twist and turn God's law, God's word, God's command to downplay the bad news that you and I are sinners. Because if we do, all we are doing is diminishing the good news that we have a Savior. Do we need a great Savior if we're not great sinners? We don't. Do we need the Son of God to die for us if we're just kind of sinners? I don't think we do. Surely there's something else in the world that could overcome our kind of sinfulness. But if we are truly great sinners, there can be only one solution. And that's to have a great Savior who would give His life for our life. And that is what we have in Jesus. Now I know when we read that list, particularly on the issue of homosexuality, and I, I know uh, just like me, many of you have friends and family that are in that, that are struggling with that. Some, some sexual identity issues or what have you. Pretty much everybody here is touched in some way by that reality, including, including my family. My uncle was a homosexual. He passed away from, from having AIDS. It's a very difficult thing for our family all the way through, but we loved him and he loved us. And uh, some of you yourselves may be struggling with that particular issue. And, and, and it's a very difficult thing to hear that God says, this is not for you. This is not what I created for you for. I, I love you. I've got something better for you. That's, that, is, that is a hard thing to hear. That's a hard thing to embrace sometimes. And, and I totally understand. Like I said earlier, every culture is going to struggle with some aspect of God's commands. And in our culture today, right now, this is one of our biggest struggles is to embrace this truth from God's word as God's truth. But as Christians, I just want to say, the option is not to downplay the truth of God, that it's bad news that you and I are sinners. And part of our sinfulness, part of our brokenness, is in our sexuality. And, and I just want to say this as clearly as I can. That applies to everybody. There is not an adult here in this room who is not sexually broken, who is not struggling with sin in a sexual way. Every one of us do. In some way, some form or fashion, every one of us is going to struggle with that. We are broken in that area of life. Everyone is heterosexual, homosexual, doesn't matter. But we can't say that that's okay. We can't say to those who are parched and thirsty, don't worry about it, you're fine. We have to say, no, God has something here. There is living water to quench that thirst, and it is Jesus. Jesus called himself that uh, in, in the Gospel of John. I am the living water. Drink from me and you will never thirst again. So we are calling people to this. But here's one of the reasons I think this has become such a challenging thing for us. Is because so often Christians talk about this in a triumphal way. We become judgmental, hypercritical. We look down on people who struggle with sins that we don't necessarily struggle with. And because of that, you know, others are afraid to even talk about these things. Or to embrace the biblical truth. And there's a temptation in that to deny it or downplay it. So we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot on this issue. But if we go back to scripture, I think just reading Romans 1 through 3, we see the recovery of that. 
that there is a way of talking about hard truths in a soft way. There's a way of talking about the bad news without downplaying it and diminishing what Christ has done. Paul himself says, look, you've got to approach sin like this. Yes, you're guilty. So am I. Paul himself would say, out of all the sinners in the world, this is Matt's paraphrase, out of all the sinners in the world, I'm the worst one. He says, this is the spirit. Chapter 2 of Romans 2, or chapter 2 of Romans, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Maybe not the same exact things, sure. But every one of us is broken by sin. And so I think part of the challenge of upholding the truth of God's word, and we are commanded to uphold that truth. We are commanded to be like Jesus, who is full of grace and truth in John chapter 1. And Paul himself commands us to speak the truth in love, Ephesians. So if that's our standard, there's a way to do this, and it doesn't look like hypercritically judging others, looking down on others. And what Paul, direct, what Paul addresses here specifically is, is uh, hypocritically judging others. That's not the role of the Christian. We can point to the truth, but we don't have to do so in a hypocritical, judgmental way. Instead, what Romans gives us is this reality, is that it doesn't matter how well you think you lived your life, you're still a sinner in need of saving. And that's how every Christian should approach any moral issue. Is that I may not engage in that specific, that specific sin under the right circumstances, in the right place, right, wrong place, wrong time, wrong circumstances. I can see myself sinning in that way. That, that as a Christian we know, I, I'm not above some, my sin, my struggle may not be the same, but I'm not above them. I'm not better than them. The same Jesus they need is the same Jesus I need and is no different. And he, here's what we read in Romans chapter 3 that, that, that points this out. And this is, the ama- this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the great thing about what Jesus accomplished for us. Is that Paul says, there is not a right standing before God that you can earn. Whether it's by following the laws of the Old Testament... The, the, one of the big reasons that the Old Testament law is there is simply to point out that we're sinners so that we will come to God knowing that we need saving. He says there is a righteousness apart from the law, chapter 3, verse 21, that has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteous, this righteousness, verse, verse 22, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all believe there is no difference. Between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace. You cannot try and live a perfectly chaste life and earn a right standing before God. It's not going to happen. Even if you were to nail that down, some other part of your life is going to be a hot mess. It just is. I know that you're a sinner because I know that I'm a sinner and I know we're the same. We're made in the image of God alike. I know how hard I try to not sin. 
and how often I fail at that. So I know I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And the only way, this is what righteousness means, the only way to stand before God right, to have a right relationship with Him, is we've got to get that rightness from somewhere else. We've got to get that right standing from another place. And see, this is what Jesus is doing. He is taking your sin and mine. All of the ones we read in Romans 1 and all the ones you can read in, throughout the whole scriptures, he's taken all of that sin that we've ever committed and Jesus is paying the penalty for it on the cross. But because he was perfect, the grave could not hold him. So he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And in faith, in him, we get a righteous standing before God. And this is the good news for folks like you and me. For Jews and Gentiles for thousands of years. This is the good news. It's not your religiosity. It's not your moral scruples. It's not your ability to white-knuckle it and not fall into a particular sin. It's not how often you come to church and how much you serve and how much you give. As we have heard before, the ground of the cross is level. Everybody comes to Jesus as great sinners. And everybody is called to embrace the good news that there is a great Savior. His name is Jesus. Do you have faith in Him? Do you believe Him? Do you believe He's enough? Or are you still trying to get yourself right with God by not sinning? It won't work. It is by faith that we are saved. Do you have that faith? Not only that, but as we heard beautifully sung in that special, it is... That faith in Jesus, knowing that we are saved, that's what motivates us to change. God doesn't call us to change so that we can come to Him. God comes to us in order to change us. And my prayer for us this morning is that we wouldn't let culture, our family, our own feelings, even our own thoughts and our own reason, our own ability to think, all good things, but all things in which are also tainted by sin. We wouldn't let anything talk us out of the truth of God's word. And in the truth of God's word, we would embrace over and over again that yes, we are great sinners, but yes, thank God, we have a great Savior. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for telling us what we need to hear, even when we may not want to hear it. Showing us truth even as we are comfortable sometimes in our own lives. God, I thank you that you come to us even when we aren't willing to come to you. That Jesus came into this world is proof of that. And it tells me that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, you do not give up on us. As your word testifies about Jesus, he loved them and he loved his disciples to the very end. And even though there is wrath for the sinner who has not embraced Jesus, there is love for that sinner that Jesus would come for them. And I am one of them and I am thankful. Help me to live in a way that shows 
by thankfulness. You've got to pray for those here this morning that are struggling with that thought that they know they're sinners. They know they've blown it. They know they're broken. They just, for whatever reason, they just feel like they can't really come to you. That you are rejecting them. God, help them to see that's not true. Why would Jesus come if he intended to reject them? Jesus came intending to receive those who would come to him by faith. And for those of us who believe, and we know we're forgiven, but we're struggling. We're struggling with some of the commands you've given us in the Bible, and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's hard for us to wrap our hearts around. Sometimes we'd like to go in and change some things about what you said, but we know that that's not an option. And that ultimately we would just trust that you are wiser than us, You've got a better plan than us. You go all the way back from the beginning and created all that there is with that plan in mind. And you are an eternal God. Help us just to trust that we are not God, you are God. And where we don't understand, we still obey. We still submit to your authority in our lives. Because you are truly our good, good Father. And for that we give thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. Whatever the Lord's spoken to your heart this morning, I invite you to respond to him in prayer. And I'll be down front. If you like prayer, feel free to come forward. I would love to pray with you. Or you can pray where you're at, pray with the people around you. But let's respond to the Lord as we stand together and sing this song of invitation.